Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here, back with my dear brother, Dr. Keith Witt, our integrally informed master of psychotherapy. Hey Keith, how you doing, man? Doing great today, Jeff. How are you? Doing great. We wanted to talk this week about uh, a topic that we often talk about, actually. It's shadow. And yet you've been doing some thinking on shadow and some writing on shadow that you've shared with me. That is really exciting. I've learned a lot from you. And I'm really excited to share some of the um, you know insights that you have into this. It's such an important, it's almost, we could consider it one of the great engines of evolution, of our own development. Because we realize at some point that we are bigger than we know, literally. I mean, there's parts of ourselves that we're not aware of that are still there, and often they're running the show, and they're, you know, arising as anger when somebody takes your parking space, or, you know, some sadness you can't shake, or, you know, just these forces that seem to run our lives that we can't control and aren't aware of, but we know they're there. And so development becomes, in a way, at a certain stage, and I'm going to posit that the integral stage really brings us on in full force, is that because we know this so much, our life and our practice becomes the process of shining the light on areas of ourselves that were previously in the dark. And that becomes a really exciting slash painful slash liberating process. And so how am I doing so far, Keith? Doing great. Yeah. I completely agree with all that. Yeah, so one of the things, and I, I guess one of the ways we could start this conversation is, so let's look at the history of that process and how shadow actually arrives as we become human and how it changes as we move up the various altitudes of development. Let's just maybe start there and see how it goes. Sure. Uh, just, just as an orienting framework, uh, shadows everything that we can't perceive, we can't see. And there's constructive and destructive shadow. There's material that arises um, into consciousness in forms of thoughts and impulses that are great and healthy, and, and there's destructive ones, depending upon how threatened we feel. And then there's shadow that we just naturally, stuff that we haven't seen that comes up, that we just, simple ignorance, really, and then we see it and, and we go, yes, okay, now I can, I didn't know that before, I know it now, and then there's shadow that we resist seeing. If you, if you think about it, pretty much all mammals live their life from shadow from non-conscious processes that come up through their personality, through, and as we all know, you have a couple of dogs, mm -hmm. all mammals have personalities. Yeah. Comes up through personality in the form of, of impulses and, and relationships and so on, and, in, and instincts and drives. But when consciousness came, we added a whole new uh, element, uh, you know, self-awareness. We added being aware of ourselves in the past and the, and the future. And of course, um, this is the thing that makes us human. This is, you're describing that moment where, you know, the caveman or cavewoman looked into the 
pond and saw his or her reflection and said, okay, I get it. I am. I exist. I I'm something other than this world. I, I'm, I, I have, there's me and then there's it. There's me and then there's you. And that kicks off a whole cascade of, you know, better and worse in a certain way that, uh, you know, leads to us. Yeah. It's just, to, to me, that's just so magical. Yeah. Amazing. We, we can, Astonishing. We can look back at, through the evolutionary uh, record and we can see shifts. And, you know, six million years ago when we came down out of the trees and formed family units in ways that other primates hadn't. Um, developed uh, the capacities for romantic infatuation and intimate bonding that that um, humans have, um, and the sexual capacities that humans have that other mammals don't have. And then 200,000 years ago, um, with the FOXP2 mutation, where we we really encountered a, a coherent past, present, and future um, grammar and metaphor came into being. Those those capacities um, came into being. The, those areas of the left hemisphere, the Broca's areas and Wernicke's areas, got organized. And you can see evolution accelerating over those last 200 years, 200,000 years. And now in the course of a single lifetime, we can see an individual uh, directing their ontological evolution. And a lot of that evolution is determined by their integration and their discovery of shadow. Yeah. As Ken Wilber often points out, we can see this happen through a lifetime of an individual human being, and also note that they start at square one. They start at that moment, uh, you know, when is it, a year in, or uh, you'd you know this, but when a, a, a child becomes self-conscious and Three moves of out of that oceanic, oceanic sort of merger of, with mother and environment into a self-aware creature. And what, what time is that? Well, it, it happens in stages. A child's born with a, a certain kind of self-awareness and a natural bonding to the, the mother's body and nervous system, um, but doesn't really feel separate enough as a self to be embarrassed until they're 10 or 11 months old. I find that fascinating, that, that <laughs> when there's enough neural development and physical development that uh, a child can be aware of themselves separate from mother, self-observed to a certain extent. Um, then when they get disapproved of by a parent, they'll go into a shame reaction. But before that, there's not enough self-awareness to feel shame because shame's uh, a social emotion. Isn't that something? Um, I, re I actually remember yeah. that, Keith. I remember the bath in our kitchen sink where my mother, where our family lived, where it was not okay for my mother to bathe me in front of her girlfriends anymore. I remember it. And that's a significant point. Yeah. And I, I acted out or something, like? and she never did it again. Uh, I, it was just very appropriate. And um, uh, I don't remember the details, but I remember the embarrassment. <laughs> <laughs> right. And because you were probably securely attached, you went into a shame emotion as you felt the disapproval. And then she picked you up and comforted you, and probably in about 10 or 15 seconds, you felt okay again. Yeah. But social learning had taken place, and also her distress, her, her embarrassment, her shame that got turned into her distress with you, was significant enough that that memory 
got imprinted into your consciousness. Hmm. Um, and we don't have many memories from those times, so that was a significant one. So does this kick off and the shadow it, here, Keith? Is that what we're talking about? Well, well, there's a couple more steps. Okay. And then, so the, the next step is around 14 months, we're aware of whether we're a little boy or a little girl. Hmm. So we're not aware of that until, well, I'm a boy, I'm a girl. Around when language comes, 18 to 24 months, and it's, this is no coincidence that it's when language comes, we begin to develop a, a theory of mind, an idea of, of other people as thinking beings and us as thinking beings. And this is generally where people mark the beginning of a self historically, but I don't think that uh, it starts there. I think it started at conception. Oh, my I God. I think the self has been growing all that time. Um, there's a lot of good evidence that uh, that five and six months old actually remember things. Um, uh, both implicit memory, they have implicit memories uh, of absorbing memories. And then we, we've seen, uh, done studies where children that were shown, say, a still face of somebody at six months, somebody just going blank, which kids hate, for about 30 seconds, hmm. not preferring that, that face a year, two years later. Really? Um, in other words, there's a lot of learning that goes on. And if kids are traumatized or distressed, there's capacities for dissociation, separation in their nervous system, which become the foundation for um, the defenses. And then when those, those shame things that you were talking about with the bath and everything start around 11, 12 months, we start to develop um, social learning. And social learning is what we do that gets approved of and what we do that gets disapproved of, and all mammals do it. But humans, because we have this other capacity, we take the mammalian capacities and the drives and the instincts and we turn them into art. And that's what happens with consciousness. So our defenses become these elaborate and complex and even artistic interior uh, programmings um, to project or to uh, deny or to attack. And our interior sense of self arises out of this. And you know, our temperaments accept, uh, affect that enormously. There's a, there's a big difference between a happy, easygoing baby and a baby that's crabby or colicky or, or anxious or scared. And you ask mothers and they'll say, yeah, th he was like that, she was like that from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And then that affects our, our sense of self as we discover ourselves um, uh, with theory of mind. And then I think that later on at five or six years, when our, our hippocampus matures enough that we can have a, a sense of our life story or autobiographical narrative, I think we begin to develop what I've called a theory of development, which hmm. is we experience ourselves as someone who has a past and a future and that we're developing, we're growing, and not just physically, we're growing at school, we're learning things. Yeah. And there's a sense of I can affect how I develop. Yeah, and that's a theory of development. Absolutely, and, and I remember that. I think we we could all just pause for a second and remember when that started being, you know, coming online for us. Mm -hmm. It's just an amazing thing, and what's sort of miraculous about it is that it's predictable, and that it happens under its own power, and it's just the nature of the growth of the interiors. I'm just as a you know, four-year-old becomes a five-year-old and a six-year-old in terms of their, you know, little growing bodies. Their consciousness 
grows in predictable ways as well. And, you know, with these new things coming online. And of course, what integral theory tells us is that that doesn't stop. You know, we tend to, uh, when we think of the development of children, you know, we go up to maybe 18, 20, whatever, and that's it. But that we continue to develop. And some people continue to develop pretty far into, you know, high first tier, uh, entry level, second tier stages. So then the nature of the shadow, if we're looking at it in terms of these altitudes of development, what we're talking about here is that first infrared stage and and maybe the uh, magenta stage, the sort of what would be tribal in terms of the culture. But in terms of uh, a baby or a child, What's the nature of the shadow at, at that stage? And also, what age group are we talking about? We're born, to a certain extent, in symbiosis with um, our mother. And in fact, the developments call it the symbiotic stage. And then we begin into what's called separation individuation from 12 to 18 months and so on. And then the, uh, what's called the rapprochement, which is the child kind of somehow figuring out um, how do how do I reconcile the fact that I'm a separate self and yet I need my parents? We're always we're always growing in relationship with each other hmm. um, and with the cultures around us. It's a relationship from the very beginning to the very end. But out of that relationship grows an increasing sense of self. Now, what that self does is it mediates all the drives and impulses that arise out of shadow, out of the unknown. And as I said, there's the constructive unconscious and the destructive unconscious. And with little kids, how's that mediated? Well, mom and dad are godlike. They can do magic, uh, two or three. Uh, mom and dad can't do magic, but there are larger figures, um, you know, gods and goddesses and, and superheroes and so on. Santa Claus. Uh, uh, there's not enough. Sometimes I'm good. Sometimes I'm bad. Uh, you know, five to 11 to 12, Kids are concrete operational cognitively. That's very either or and black and white. And so they, where we absorb our social learning and our moral systems, we absorb black and white moral hmm. systems. And then when we develop the capacity for relativistic moral systems, when we become formal operational 11 to 14, all those black and white moral systems are what are informing us um, from our shadow about whether we're being good or whether we're being bad and so on. If those don't get refined, then they create conflicts with our emergent understanding of the world as a relativistic place. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why shadow work is the center of growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, we well, have well, to let's... keep developing our shadow. Yeah, I, I, I love that. And I want to bookmark that idea of developing your shadow. Uh, but I want to go back to this black and white, the absolutistic uh, stage of mm-hmm. development. Uh, and so this is, you know, uh, God is good and the devil's bad, or uh, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, or Dungeons and Dragons, and, you know, that kind of uh, aesthetic uh, or, or mythology is what sort of contains that. And there are people, and there are cultures, that actually that's as far as they get, right? Yep. So they're adults, yeah, they, go, they go their whole life uh, in that absolutistic black and white uh, basically moral system. Hmm. Yeah. So that's great. From an evolutionary standpoint, that's a staggering evolutionary achievement. Yeah, it is. It, it, the, 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 
the fact that there's a so that there are, there's a social construct. You know, herds of deer uh, have social construct. Uh, packs of wolves have social constructs that are that are transmitted intergenerationally. Mm-hmm. Um, gorillas and, and so on, lions and uh, this comes up when people they capture a baby orca and they keep it in captivity and then they want to release it into the ocean. Well, it turns out you can't really do that. You kind of have to help it learn how to live in the ocean first. And there aren't any orcas around to show it how, and, and that's caused some problems. So we have this, this, this social construct that's wonderful that guides the development of, of human cultures. And as that's expanded and, and become more sophisticated, what with, with writing and with cosmologies with, and, and, and that kind of stuff, it's marked the development. Uh, all the, the lower right is marked by that by that development. Those cultures are evolving. Mm-hmm. And as they evolve, they become more relativistic, um, which is what we see going up the spiral. Right. But on an individual level, our original moral programming wasn't relativistic. And so, there's a, this is in psychotherapy, you find this a lot. Of, and, and this is the idea, I think, of original sin in the, um, the Western tradition and the idea of the, the bad ego in the Eastern tradition. There's a sense of, of humans, you know, any individual human not feeling like they're particularly good because on some deep level they know that they're not following those black and white precepts perfectly like they're supposed to. Um, well, isn't that is uh, so and, true, Keith? I mean, it just, uh, everybody I know has, you know, that I know well, has some deep sort of fear that they're unworthy or this deep sort of uh, b- belief that they're fundamentally flawed. And the original sin does sort of cover it. <laughs> and, and that's, sin. It's just sort of built in, isn't it, at this stage? It's built into self-awareness, just like the defenses are built into self-awareness. Uh, one drum that I beat all the time is that 20th century psychology pathologized consciousness um, way more than it deserves. Mm-hmm. In that, you learn your defenses your defenses start being laid down pretty much from birth onward, and they accelerate from 11 months to 15 months. By the time I'm, I'm mat- my brain's mature enough to examine my defenses, they've been accelerating forever. 15 years is forever in neurological time, and they're very, very powerful. And the integration of defenses line of development is a central line of development because if we get arrested on that line of development, we're basically stopped with whatever altitude those defenses allow us to go. Mm-hmm. And what those do is they kind of lock the destructive shadow in place. The, the way that that gets unlocked, the way that you can proceed on uh, integration of defenses line of development, the way you unlock that is you, you, you cultivate, surrender, you learn to be aware of your constructive shadow. Mm-hmm. You allow it to help you grow and transform. You learn how to identify destructive shadow and then metabolize it, dialysize it, transform it into constructive shadow. And this marks spiritual development and interpersonal development. I see couples do this. I help couples do this. I observe couples do this all the time. How's it go? Well, so their couple comes in, right? Mm -hmm. And they want to love each other better. Otherwise, why would they come (laughs) They come in and they want to love each other better. And they say, start talking about whatever bother them. You know, when I, when I was playing with the kid, 
you teased me, and I and you were just putting me down. I didn't like that. Well, I wasn't. I didn't tease you that much. And so each one of them is simultaneously coming from constructive shadow. I want to love you better. But then their defenses, you know, the part of them that feels threatened by the other one is coming from destructive shadow. Yeah, but you treated me badly, or you're misunderstanding me. Now, because nervous systems bias threat, they begin to get more threatened by each other. And there's more negative shadow coming up, even as they're trying to love each other better. No, no, you teased me the whole time. No, I only teased you a couple of times. Well, you're always teasing me. No, I don't always tease you. And so my job is to say, wait a second. And, you know, when you work with couples, you've got to interrupt them all the time. It's so <laughs> different than doing the show I hadn't work. thought about that. But you're probably I always right. say, you know, I'm going to interrupt you all the time. And you say, look, what you want is to love each other better. And they both go, of course. I go, well, so in defending yourself, you're amplifying your negative story about the other person. And you have these amplified negative feelings about this other person. That's coming from your shadow, the part of you that wants to protect yourself and making them worse than they are. And so let's just slow it down. Let's examine that. And let's see how they really are. You know, he did only tease you three or four times, but you did tease her. Now, you can tell him, stop teasing me. Well, he, will, he won't stop if I tell him. Well, what do you, th- what do you think? Yeah, I, I'll stop if you tell me. Well, hmm. let's try that next time. And now we're beginning to grow the constructive shadow. We want to love each other better. And we're beginning to metabolize the destructive shadow that we're threatening. It's threatening to you when he teases. It's threatening to you when she misunderstands. Hmm. Yes, I am threatened. Well, the way to deal with that threat is not to get all hostile with her or with him or to put him down or put her down. The way to deal with that threat is to go, hey, I'm threatened. Let's love each other better. And if I can get one member of a couple to start going to there and the other member doesn't have a personality disorder, which causes more problems, which we can get into some other time, they begin to, when that happens, they can begin to deconstruct the negative destructive shadow, enhance the constructive shadow, and get better and better at getting back to love. And this is a tantric process that, that when it, it works, causes couples to accelerate their development on the integration of the defensive line of development, the spiritual line of development, the sexual line of development, the self-line and the cognitive line. Hmm. I mean, it's why one of the reasons that uh, about 30, 40% of my practice is couples and families. I love helping people do this. And since we're in relationship all the time, you know, my goal is that we all end up doing this with each other all the time. Right. Uh, that would be a beautiful world. <laughs> and and we see this in people that we admire. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I admire Barack Obama. I admit it. Barack Obama will not accelerate his negative shadow when he deals with other people. He reflexively looks for compassion. Yeah. He looks for reason. There's not one episode that I can remember, which is extraordinary given how much scrutiny this guy's on in there, where he surrendered to his destructive shadow in dialogue with another person. Yeah. Um, he might have done it privately. I'm sure he had because nobody's perfect. And so those people, when we see them systematically going, the Dalai Lama does it too. They always go to compassion, no matter how threatening the environment. We know intuitively that that's the best way to go. Yeah. We find ourselves feeling warm and loving when we actually encounter those people. Because there are people that on an inside feel the difference between the constructive and destructive shadow. They don't allow the destructive impulses. They amplify the constructive ones. And then there's an interior process of reaching for wisdom. 
And, yeah. and really, when you're dealing with destructive shadow, that's what you got to do. You got to feel it and accept it, but simultaneously bring embodied moral discernment to bear on it. Yeah. And that combination of acceptance and embodied moral discernment often are paradoxical. They're often reciprocal inhibitors. And so part of development is getting better at bringing those two forces to better together and reconciling them with the drive and the instincts and the impulses that arise. Well, well, tell, me, tell me again, Keith, the, just, the, the two forces you're talking about and how we reconcile them. Well, when I say I have a, uh, a destructive impulse, I have, um, say that, you know, there's a... a um, uh, I guess it's a destructive impulse. Okay, well, for me, there's a destructive impulse. There's, there's a dinner party. Okay? And, you know, there's, say there's a couple of people that I find irritating at that dinner party or boring or something. So I try to talk myself out of going to the dinner party. That's, to me, that's a destructive impulse. Because, mm-hmm. you know, that's a pro-social environment. I should go to that. And so, uh, first of all, I have to notice. You keep trying to talk yourself out of the dinner party. Okay? So I, now I have to accept, first of all, okay, I have fear or reluctance or anxiety or whatever, anticipatory shame, something is causing me to talk myself out of going to this event. Now I bring moral reasoning to bear. Moral reasoning is, in your moral system, Keith, it is more morally virtuous to go to that environment and participate and serve the group than to talk yourself out of it. And now I need to embody that moral reasoning by actually, you know, going to the, the, going to the, the, the party and serving the group. So acceptance embodied moral reasoning. And if you look at almost all destructive shadow, you first got to notice it and accept, okay, I have this destructive impulse, whether it's to attack another person or withdraw from another person or do something selfish when I should be doing something generous or so on. Or, or even a codependent destructive impulse where I have an impulse to do something for somebody where it's inappropriate or where I should set a boundary. Well, I need to observe it, and you accept that I have it, and then I need to go, okay, you know, within the context of my best moral judgment, what's the best thing to do? And then I need to direct myself to act in service of that. Mm -hmm. And as I do that, my shadow changes. It grows just a little bit. And that's how we, one of the main ways that we take our destructive uh, shadow and turn it into constructive shadow. Um, well, would you say that this is a, a feature of, it probably starts at green, I'm thinking. I mean, that green gets very interested in psychotherapy and, and you know, the interiors basically in general and also becomes sensitive, and, you know, emotional. And so actually, you know, even in the context of what we were doing a minute ago, which is looking at how shadow evolves through the altitudes of development, how does this, Fit in. When does this turning towards your pain, or you know, actually doing the process you just talked about? When does that come online? Is that an integral uh, feature, or or earlier? Now we're talking about integrally informed psychotherapy, which, of course, I have tremendous amount of uh, interest and excitement and, and forty years okay. of experience. It happens at every level, but it it happens in a different way. So the moral reasoning at red is, and this is, is whatever going on in service of your personal vision of how you want your world to be. I, I had a guy, a red guy that I was working with who got referred to me by somebody from uh, anger management. 
and he needed individual work, so they referred him to me because they figured I could handle it. And I like working with guys. I like working with women too. I like working with everybody. Anyway, he came <laughs> to me, and so he was t- he was this red guy, and so so I ch- challenged him. I said, "So what kind of a how, what kind of a world do you want to create? You want to create a world where you're bullying people and giving people crap all the time, or do you want to create a world where you're the man of wisdom leader leading people?" And he loved that man of wisdom. You know, he went back to his anger management group, and you know, man of wisdom became a mantra in his anger mm-hmm. management group. Right on. Now, it was still in service of his egocentric desires to be, you know, the super in charge guy, but it it gave him a, a, a fulcrum of moral reasoning that he could bring to bear when he was bullying or destroy, distressing another person, where he could discern it, and then he would have. Uh, now I can I can be a man of wisdom in this situation, still be in charge, still be Mr. Red. Um, so um, is that the but, red version uh, of turning the destructive shadow into the constructive shadow? Exactly. Yeah. A blue version is if I have somebody... So we're talking now traditionalism, we're blue, blue also yes. known as amber, um, traditionalism. Yes, go on. So if we're going to traditionalism, there's a sacred text. Um, whatever the sacred text is, but it's it's, it's accepted um, on faith, um, whatever that is. I mean, you, you find that the most easy, the easiest way to see that in, is in religious. Uh, uh, as someone has a specific understanding of what the sacred uh, text mm-hmm. means, uh, sometimes mediated by by a minister or so on, or it can be a political perspective. You know, you can have a specific, concrete understanding of, of democracy, say, but that is so rigid that it can't be self-examined. And so, under those circumstances, when things are going badly, when destructive shadow comes up, the question is: All right, um, what would Jesus do? Um, what would the sacred t- uh, text say in this situation? Um, now, what this does is it gives somebody a chance to access intuitive wisdom their human intuitive wisdom. Mm-hmm. And the human intuitive wisdom wants to care, wants to share, and wants to be fair. You know, this, is, this is an evolutionary drive. These are drives. These are like the sex drives or the hunger drives or thirst drives. We have drives to care for each other. We have drives to be fair with each other. We Thank have drives you. to share with each other. Yes. That's, that's, that's actually new to me in my understanding of evolutionary theory and the interiors. Um, in the last few years, just, and you've helped me so much with this, Keith, that, you know, I was always the survival of the fittest guy and, you know, hypervigilance, and I could see how that was all good, but also that we have a drive to care. That's big. We have a drive to love. And then David Lloyd comes along with all his studies of Darwin and shows how Darwin is saying the same thing. It's been a uh, big, big realization for me that that's all built in. You know, Darwin's, everyone, Darwin is mostly known for the origin of species, but he wrote a book, published in 1873, on the expression of emotion in animals and man, really? where he looked, he, and this is very popular with neuroscientists, um, he tracked the vagus nerve, he called it the, the pneumogastric nerve, um, which is the nerve that connects the, the heart, the heart intelligence to the brain. Um, and he showed that there are these, these, these emotional control systems that all mammals share and that have progressed into human beings and then human beings have brought consciousness to bear with them. 
and it brought them into um, their, their social context. Um, and what, what this has done to almost everybody now is everybody takes an evolutionary perspective these days whether it's the individual evolution or whether it's social evolution. You know, as you and I now are talking, in a way, from an evolutionary perspective about, you know, how do we bring this acceptance and moral discernment to bear blue? Well, we ask somebody to be um, aware of their sacred text. At Orange, we ask them to be aware of, remember, Orange is, is positioned on merit-based hierarchies. Um, We're talking sacred. modernism now. Secular. Talking modernism, so you you say so now you have now you have a actual conscious set of values that are affected at modern um, by data um, and you say well uh, you have a, a conscious understanding of how relationships should be for instance um, uh, you have an understanding that you um, uh, she should both weigh in on how you should be parent parenting. So here you are trying to bully your husband into parenting the way that you want to do rather than asking him um, what he believes. Does that fit with your modern moral structure? And she'll say, no, actually it doesn't. Um, I, I'm ashamed of myself for trying to bully him rather than ask him how he feels. And he'll go, yeah, you should be. And then I'll go, so now you're attacking her as she has this this insight about bullying you instead of saying, wow, I really like it that you have this insight. This is what I call the genie in the bottle ex uh, experience. I, I did a I know you did, the therapist recording. in the wild. It was great. Yeah. About just when you get what <laughs> you wanted, when they finally tell you what you wanted to hear, why aren't you happy? You know? Yeah, why aren't you happy? I, my wish is granted and I'm still mad. <laughs> and so... And so then we're, we're pulling in now these modern value systems and asking them to be true to them and to embody them with each other. Um, basically, we're now in the lower left. We're saying so. Now we're looking at what's good. Are you willing to do what you believe is what's good? And, and then we begin to get in. And at this point in psychotherapy, um, uh, people do want insight uh, in modern in modernism, and, and, and they want insight at, at traditional, too, as long as it's consistent with the sacred text. But modernists want insights that help them be stronger and more beautiful and more powerful. When we get to green, people want insights that make them um, more connected to God, make them more egalitarian, those kinds of things. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're hungry for, for transformative insight, and, but the transformative insights need to be consistent with the egalitarian and non-hierarchical um, um, standards that emerge in the green value mean. And so then in psychotherapy, you go, okay, now if there's a problem with the destructive unconscious, let's bring to bear acceptance that you have this, whatever this impulse is, which is easier at green than at blue. Remember, at blue, lusting after my neighbor's wife is almost as bad as actually going and having sex with my neighbor's wife. Right. Okay, so it's very hard to get the message across to blue. No. Lusting after your neighbor's wife is just an impulse. That's just an impulse. That's lust. That's an impulse. It's a drive. Drives speak to us non-consciously. You don't have conscious control. It's very different from going over and actually flirting with her and trying to make something happen. Okay? It's moral to have the impulse and then translate it into it's just an impulse and I'm going to do the good thing instead. Yeah. Okay? When, when blue can get that, they begin to move a little bit out of that original sin shame place and into a little bit more self-acceptance. Just as an example, Billy Graham, the you know, well-known Christian evangelist, 
would never be alone with a woman. Period. In his office, in a car, in any wow. situation, just would not allow that to happen. That was his rule. Everybody knew it. And that's how he dealt with it. At the, we're talking the blue, the traditional, the uh, amber altitude. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I got to say, that's not a bad standard for Billy Graham. Absolutely. No, and, I'm sure it, it worked know, quite well. charismatic as he is. Yeah, of course. Right. So charismatic as he is, women are going to turn the light. Way, some women are going to turn the light way up. Yep. And that's a force. If you know, he couldn't trust himself to handle. You know. And he couldn't trust the culture right. because remember, even if he didn't do anything, some woman could say he did something, and then Billy Graham is ruined because in blue culture, all it takes is one mistake and you're screwed. Yeah. You know, which is again, that's not very relativistic. Now, if you're dealing from a more complex understanding of shadow, some guy who goes and cheats on his wife and then gets caught and feels really guilty about it and then works on it, or a woman who cheats on her husband and then works on it and transforms and becomes more faithful and, and more connected to her partner is way different from a sexually compulsive person who goes and repetitively you know, hits on other people and has repetitive affairs and repetitive lines on. Those are two radically different things that are treated as exactly the same by yeah. the there's no relativistic moral understanding. Right. And you begin to have more of that in, in orange and then more of that in green. Uh, now, one thing that happens in integral is there's a different understanding of the I, of the self. Hmm. And the interface between me, I, you know, my conscious self, the executive ego, they used to they call it in, in some forms of psychotherapy, and shadow is fascinating to me. Because... Our unconscious, our shadow, does information processing. You know, who's doing that? You know, when we're talking, our working memory pulls up a bunch of ideas and memories and action steps. Who's deciding to do that? Who's giving us those things? When we have psychic experiences, when we participate in extraordinary healing or are super attuned to each other in nature, or we connect with the infinite, what part of us is doing that? Yeah. That's a constructive unconscious, but who's doing that? And what humans do when we discover something that's kind of unknowable is we project ourselves into it. So what Carl Jung did with that is he said, well, there's archetypes in there. That's my anima, my feminine, that's my animus, my masculine, that's my warrior self, that's my, my healer self, that's my uh, goddess self, that's uh, the archetype of the, of, the, of the divine fool and so on. And we project people. Like, you know, like we're all multiple personalities, associative identity disorder people, and there's all those people in there. But actually, I think what, ha what really is in there is there's forces that do information processing, and they don't have a self unless we give them one. And the best way to see that, one of the best ways of seeing that is in Gestalt empty chair dialogue. You remember, like, uh, you know, Freud thought that the, the unconscious was a, was a seething cauldron, you know, drives and stuff. And then the young said, no, no, it's got all these, these figures, these archetypal figures in it. And they fought over that and they never talked to each other again. And another one of those 20th century divisive things. Well, Fritz Perls, who was a psychoanalyst, um, was very bored with psychoanalysis. You know, I just sit around and listen to people. So, so he wanted to speed it up. So he first of all tried to speed it up because psychoanalysis, you have a transference where the person treats you like a parent. He tried to act like people's parents. So someone would tell him what his you know, his hostile father was like, so Fritz would try to act like a hostile father to try to speed it up. That didn't work very well. So Fritz developed the empty chair technique. 
And the empty chair technique is you take a fragment of you from a dream or a daydream or something, and you put it over in a chair and you talk to it. Now, Fritz knew that what stops people from developing is they dissociate from parts of themselves, and they keep it in shadow. They won't let them bring it into the light. And so he would take one of these figures that, that appear symbolically in our dreams and our daydreams, and he would say, put it in the chair and I'll go be it. So say I dreamt I had the, there was a snake in my office. And so I'd wake up and I'd do a dialogue. I'd put the snake in the chair and i go, what are you doing in my office? That's going to scare everybody. And then I'll go over and I'll be the snake. Okay, so I go, well, first of all, I'm a snake. You know, I'm a reptile and I don't really have any emotions, but I like sitting around. I don't have any arms and legs and a lot of drives and, you know, hello, Keith. And I go, well, get the hell out of here. I don't want you to be in my office. And well, I'm, I'm in your office. I represent the primitive in everyone. It's always going to be in your office. Trying to get it out is dissociating. Don't do that. Well, come on, snake. So anyway, we have this dialogue that goes back and forth. What we're doing is we're connecting parts symbolically that then in our, gives our brain a chance to connect those two parts that have been separate. And then a little bit of shadow comes into a light and we become a little bit more complex. Mm-hmm. And, you know, since we're, we're complex <clears throat> systems, how do you help complex systems get more complex? You link differentiated parts. How do you link them? Well, one way we link them is we'll take some part of ourselves and I'll lend my ego to that part, like I just lent my ego to the snake, and then the snake talks to Keith, and then I keep talking to the snake. Yeah. There's only one ego for us to lend. It, 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 it's like those, there's a, uh, some Greek uh, archetypal figures where there's these three fates that would look out at the world, but they only had one eye and one ear and <laughs> one mouth. And they would always be arguing with each other because they would have to share. They'd have to pass the eye back so the other person could yeah. see, or they have to pass the ear so the other person could yeah. hear. The ego's like that. We can pass our ego to some part of ourselves and give it some kind of life. Yeah. And sometimes it demands it. You know, if we get angry, all of a sudden, our self is now in, into our angry self, where there's a whole different set of impulses, a whole different set of memories, a whole different um, set of orientations to the world that feels like me, but really it's completely different. Um, I've just now, myself, my separate self, my ego, it's been hijacked now, by that angry part or that frightened part or that that lustful part. Mm-hmm. Um, lust is interesting that way because as we begin to get more sexually turned on, we become more impulsive and less self self aware. It, it's it's our nervous system that drive organizes our consciousness to make it happen and to not inhibit. The inhibitions get weaker and weaker the farther you go along the lust uh, path. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if we're not aware of that, that shadow. Yeah. organizing us. If we're aware of that, then we can make the adjustment. And the person that's being aware is, you know, there's a self, that, that level of self-observation that can make, can, can decide who am I going to invest me into. And that's why meditation accelerates development. It gives us that extra level of self-observation. Yeah. That means we can take our ego another level out and then decide where we're going to put it. And as we do that, we can observe shadow better and then and then see it, and then integrate it with it. And this is really one of the, the one of the real portals into integral consciousness, don't you think, Keith? I mean, yeah. it's just sort of systematic calisthenics of self-observation that meditation is. And it's a tantric practice when we do it with each other. Yeah. If I can receive influence from you, you know, Keith, you're getting a when when. Um, uh, David Reardon and I 
were doing Loving Completely. He produced that the way a music producer produces a CD. It was really a lot of fun. And he would be in the, I would be talking, and he would be on the outside, and we, we were connected through a microphone. And my energy would get a little low. He could, Keith, bring your energy up. Or I'd get a little goofy. You know, I get a little goofy sometimes. He says, not so goofy, Keith. And I would bring it down. <laughs> and so he was basically giving me influence about how to adjust my um, interface between the energies that were in me and the, my purpose and my executive ego myself. Um, and so that was a tantric process. It was, it was really uh, a lot of fun. And to the extent that I surrendered to that, you know, not really uh, resisting it, but really saying, sure, let's make this a shared product, I think that, that, that uh, created a better transmission of that material. It was a tantric process. Yeah. And as I look back even on some of the spots we hit on this call, you're talking about the snake in the chair, and uh, in the earlier stages, that would have been a real snake, or it would have been something other yeah. than you. It would have been, you know, it was yeah. the, the snake. And that's, you know, that sort of magical thinking that even moves into the mythical, where, you know, it's the sort of archetypal snake of the Garden of Eden. And then you begin to, we begin to see that, wait a second, that snake is actually a part of me, and I can relate to it uh, as a part of me. And then maybe, I don't know, do we get to the place where just the me is so much bigger that in a way we want to see the snake as something, as an object again, as something that sort of has a mind of its own, uh, but even though it's a part of us, and it's just, this is maybe the edge of my own development, I get a little lost here. But that's interesting to me when I think that that snake actually does have a character in mind of its own, even though it's a part of me. And I think you've captured really the essence of a certain uh, essential part of second-tier consciousness mm -hmm. with, with that. Because the second-tier involves lots of beliefs and behaviors that are first-tier beliefs and behaviors. It's just more self-aware and the, the more the healthy manifestations yeah. of. And so there is, there are certain times if you do ceremony, um, I know that you've done ceremony and I've done ceremony. Anybody who does workshops, anybody who's done funerals and weddings or any of that stuff that we've all done or a lot of us have done or does psychotherapy, there's ceremony arises out of that. And sometimes as the ceremony arises, the snake is a real snake. Sometimes it's the archetypal snake. Um, mm -hmm. uh, now that's informed by my knowledge that human beings, for instance, are genetically programmed to be scared of snakes. You take <laughs> a human who's never seen a snake and you show them a snake, they'll be scared of it. Why? Well, sometime in, in our evolutionary history, fear of snakes got, got, got put hardwired yeah. into the human genome. I think that's true of a lot of animals, too. Yeah. You know. Well, yeah, the uh, horses, when they came to the New World, when they heard the rattle of a rattlesnake, freaked out. Really? They didn't, you know, it's not like they ever heard a rattlesnake before, but they could just hear <clears> the <throat> rattle and they would freak out. It was built there was in. A genetic, there was a, an evolutionary memory. This is, I mean, this is the kind of thing that, that, that Carl Jung just went crazy over. You know, the evolutionary the memory. The, and, and, and so getting back to your point about integral, it can be any of those things or all of those things depending upon the moment. And that's flex flow consciousness. Hmm. 
And that flexible consciousness doesn't happen randomly. It happens within a moral universe. It's organized by purpose. And purpose is organized by our emergent values. And, and by the time you're, you're an integral on your moral line of development and your values line of development, we're really dealing with lots of relativistic values that are in surface of, uh, uh, you know, this is where in, in cosmic consciousness in that tape, when Ken was talking about, um, integral ethics, you know, the, the, the lifeboat, there's different participants in the culture that have, um, different value. For instance, there's a, 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 an instinctual desire to protect children. You know, humans have that. And so in a situation where there's a child at risk, an adult who really c- contributes a lot, has a lot more to contribute, for instance, to the collective, maybe skills, maybe understanding, whatever, will put his life or her life at risk to protect a child. Hmm. Well, there's that evolutionary um, drive that now has been instituted, um, integrated into the moral structure of all of us. It says, yes, under those circumstances, I'll risk myself for a child. Um, might not do it for an adult. Yeah. You know, it's, a rel- it's, it's a relativistic value. And so it, in, in the second tier, those, it, it, those questions, those processes, which they're really processes, they become more the, the objects of awareness, more what we work with. And there aren't any hard and fast rules. And, and this is actually true for our understanding of shadow. Um, there's these ongoing processes where, sh- where constructive and destructive shadow are always flowing through us from our dreams and from our impulses and from our, our daydreaming, from our default mode of our brain into us, into the world. Mm-hmm. How we manage those processes determines how we negotiate ourselves in, in the world, and that always requires a certain amount of attention. In that sense, we're never really, you know, somebody, is your work ever done? No, my work isn't ever done because I have to do it now, and now I have to do it again and again because I'm managing a lot of complex uh, processes that start with my snake, you know, move up through my primate, go into my primitive, and then go all the way up to the spiral. All those voices are speaking all the time. Right. And I have all to those strata are them in a coherent fashion. All those strata are still there. All, yeah. yeah, and they're all communicating all the time. Right, exactly. So, you know, one of the definitions of integral is the stage of development where you can see that, take a deep breath, and let it all be there. Yeah. You know. And enjoy it. And enjoy it. And, also, and realize it's supposed to be that way. Enjoy the show. Yeah, and that's one, one of the things we've talked about before, Keith, is that I think one of the markers of integral and in, 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 in even the way we deal with shadow is that we just become friendlier to the system. We have faith in the system. We see that this thing is unfolding, as we say, beautifully. It's not always pretty, but it's beautiful. And that we can have faith in that. And that's a new, I know it's a new orientation in my life where I actually, you know, have faith in God in a way that's not, not the way I did when I was nine. But it's still that same kind of thing where I can relax and realize that um, I'm being lived as well as living. Well, what was that thing you said that you were a dried up atheist? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one of my later moves is moving. And I think it's, it's you know, when we become modern and secular, uh, I think part of what we need to do is lose our religion. That's right on schedule to do that. 
And that, that, yeah. that, that lasts through green in the sense that green has a lot of allergies towards certainly fundamentalist religion or, or, or you know, the, the traditional religion. They, although green starts to get, you know, into fairies and into crystals and into, you know, they're a little more open to the numinous dimensions. And I think at Integral, we realize that there's a loving intelligence at work here. I don't know who it is, what it is. Or what it's up to, and I would argue with it on certain points, but <laughs> apparently there's something well, there's going on here. That, that's the collective. You know, there's a mystery that I that I embrace with wonder and enthusiasm because I do believe that there are that there are coherent forces. They might not have an identity like I have, but those forces influence me and and you and, and all of us together. Yeah. And we can feel those forces. Um, just, just that, that force, that drive to create, that yeah. evolutionary force that is infused in, in every field and every particle of the universe. Yeah. We, in, at Integral, we can focus on, on being one with that force and actually have an experience of unity with that force. Yeah. In um, uh, uh, Mahayana Buddhism, the wisdom traditions uh, said that the, some uh, enlightened people were known by how many Buddha worlds they could uh, understand or exist in. Hmm. And if you think about it, every every world is potentially a Buddha world. Yes. You know, every human being you can imagine them being fully present with what's what's emerging in the present moment and delighted with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and. If I'm fully present with what's emerging, I'm delighted with it. That that universe at that particular point is a, is a Buddha universe. That's a it's a little Buddha moment, Buddha Bodhisattva moment. Yeah. Um, it's so at we can have a sense of what that. Now again, we can always see farther than we can be. So I can feel a sense of deep shame that I don't feel that all the time. Yeah. That you know every once in a while I'm just collapse into, you know, looking at that woman crossing the street or, you know, looking at the waves out uh, uh, in the ocean or, you know, <laughs> thinking about, uh, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. But the very fact we can have this conversation and have those little moments of unity um, and have a sense that those can expand, mm-hmm. um, to me, that's, that's a second tier uh, uh, consciousness. Oh, man. Hallelujah. Brother Keith, once again, I'm feeling it in this moment. It's a beautiful, you know, sense of an expanded world where everything's okay, and which is sort of hard to wrap your mind and heart around. But in a fundamental way, everything's okay. It's just basically a, you know, interpenetration of that sort of realization of absolute reality into this, you know, hurting, suffering world. That, as I, I think we talked about before, I remember one of the books that we studied when I was in my chaplaincy program at Naropa at the Buddhist University here, and it was a book on how to be a help instead of a nuisance. And, <laughs> and it's basically, you know, once you sort of get that the sort of, the, the, the part that's loving and intelligent, that is at work in life, then it helps you to be one with the crazy, ignorant suffering, you know, all the destructive shadow that's in the world. And maybe that's what we're doing here. 
when we do it together, that's a tantric process. Yeah. You know, this, this is a practice in a way you and I are doing it. Well, not in a way we are doing a tantric practice at this moment in that you and I now are mutually, um, amplifying mm-hmm. the sense of unity that we're talking about. And so you're feeling it more. I'm feeling it more. It's a familiar feeling. It's, it's one of the reasons that, that we all want to come together to do ceremony. We amplify, uh, yeah. And we we can feel that that connection that's always there, but sometimes we have the illusion that it's not. Yeah. Um, and then when we're doing it actively with each other, we go, "Oh yes, I know this. Yeah. This is you and me. This is us. This is the lower left that, that is always arising." Yeah. I see. We're getting to the end of our time here, and um, such a beautiful conversation and a beautiful state to be here uh, at the end. Uh, is there anything else that? you think has to be put in the table here, Keith, before we close up? I think that, I think that we've covered, uh, what I like about this, the, when we talked about the neurobiology of shadow um, a few months ago, I think that we, I wanted to talk more about this, yeah. about the constructive shadow, you know, the transcendent shadow, the, the di- dialysizing destructive shadow in the, in the constructive, you know, the, the training our, our unconscious to, to be a force to, to, to support development with deaths and other people. And that's what we've done today. Yeah. And it just feels wonderful. And it's, 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 a, it's a task we all have. We all have with ourselves and we all have a responsibility to help each other with it. Yeah. And, and not just our family, everybody. You know, we have a responsibility to help the world uh, with this progression. Yeah, and and after a while, you know, the, what's the goal? The goal is the, the constructive shadow eventually guides everything. Yeah. Yes, all beings are enlightened at the end. The, the end is, is yeah. assured. <laughs> well, Keith, you know, I, I love what you're doing. We've talked about it. That you know, you've been writing. You've been this has been pouring out of you like crazy, and you really do. You bring the spiritual and the, the psychological, the neurological. You bring it all together. The cultural. I mentioned last time, I think, that you're really bringing us a, a new unified theory of shadow. And I want you to know that I really recognize that. And it, I've learned a lot. It's really, really helped me. And I appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. All right. Until next time, you take care, everybody. Keith, you too. And we'll be back before you know it. Bye, folks. Yeah, much love to everybody. Much love to everyone listening.